The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Jonathan Schenken. He is the former vice president of the American Dental Association and presently a clinical associate professor of health policy, health services research, and pediatric dentistry at Boston University. He also has a pediatric dental practice in Augusta, Maine, and he serves as a consultant to the Fred Rogers Productions on dental-related episodes for children's TV shows. We met decades ago at a conference on sugary beverages in schools and on child health, and we have stayed connected ever since. So welcome, Dr. Schenken. It's really an honor to have you. I'm so glad we have stayed in touch. Thanks for having me, Melinda. I appreciate it. Well, I remember hearing you most recently on a public radio segment where you were talking about the impact of COVID on dental health. And I thought we might start there. What have we been witnessing over the last year with regard to accessing dental care? Well, I mean, the biggest challenge we've had is that dentistry, as well as many segments of the health sector, have had to shut down for an extended period of time before we could understand truly like truly what kind of interventions we had to have within facilities and what kind of new personal protective equipment was required for dental offices and and we really shut down prevention for two months and if you think about like traditional dental care it's it's usually every six months that you go back for your preventive services so literally a third of patients missed out on preventive care in this country which is a pretty substantial number of people that had to be reappointed for dental care. Mm-hmm. And the great, I mean, that had lots of logistical issues. And, and of course, children that had tooth decay, things got worse. And, and we had a lot of challenges catching up with things. But the biggest challenge has been seeing the change in home life for people because a lot of children have been in hybrid or fully remote learning environments. And so instead of having the benefits of school nutrition programs, uh, where we know that children are getting fairly healthy offering of foods, they've been home. And we have no control over what some children are having at home that they would never have had before. And that could potentially have some dramatic consequences for younger children in the long term that we haven't studied yet. And I know that there's interest in looking at this, but there's been no outcomes of late to see how this pandemic has affected oral health yet. Right. Well, there's the whole issue for sure in adults that's been documented with regard to stress eating and teeth grinding because every day is just a new adventure in in what might be. So I don't know if you see teeth grinding in kids too, but certainly stress eating, I'm sure, and snacking, easier access to snack foods is probably playing a role in their dental health. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, the problem is like the, the information that we have about adults and grinding and cracked teeth is really more anecdotal at this point and coming from reports from dentists and not actual studies that have evaluated differences and trends 
over this time period. But, you know, I know for myself when I'm, when I'm doing meeting, I mean, I'm the benefit of actually going to work again and uh, being out of the house. But I know that when I do Zoom meetings and I am working from home occasionally, because we're not having conferences as we traditionally have, I set up shop in the kitchen. And so, and I, I think a lot of kids are, you know, that, that availability of whatever you want is something that we're going to have to readdress shortly because this is something that is unhealthy. Right. At least for oral health, it matters about how often you're consuming sugar, not just how much you're consuming, but the frequency of consumption causes the frequent acid production in the mouth. And, you know, one of the things that's, that I think is misunderstood by the public is that tooth decay is, is a pretty simple, straightforward disease process. It's not as complex as some people like to think it is. You know, there's this mythology of soft teeth, which people like to talk about often, and it really is not a factor. It's, it's sort of a, I don't want to offend anybody, but it's, it, it tends to be an excuse more than reality. There are some clinical scenarios where there are, quote-unquote, soft teeth, but those are few and far between. And uh, the reality is it's about exposure to sugar, exposure to the bacteria that causes tooth decay, which is often transmitted by family members to children, sharing utensils and pacifiers, cleaning pacifiers with saliva and so forth. But the process of tooth decay is fueled by basically the consumption of carbohydrates and sugars, simple sugars that then are consumed by the bacteria in the mouth. And that bacteria converts sugar into an acid. And so the plaque we have in our teeth harbors this bacteria and, and creates this acid and then puts it onto the surface of the tooth. And that leaches out the minerals that the tooth has, calcium and phosphates. And there's a balance because saliva actually reintroduces those minerals back into the tooth. So there's this homeostasis that exists because we all, we know we are going to consume carbohydrates in our diets and our bodies do. Uh, have adapted to that and protect our teeth through this natural process. And fluoride, whether it's in toothpaste, drinking water, what have you, helps the saliva reintroduce minerals back into the tooth structure, which is why fluoride is so important in being used. And I know some people choose not to use fluoride, but unfortunately, that component is a major factor in whether you have tooth decay or not. But the problem is that when you consume sugar, we, there's been studies looking at how it affects the acidity in your mouth with the production of you know acid from the bacteria and essentially every 20 minutes or so or for 20 minutes or so after you consume sugar in a beverage or some other food group you have this acid production for about 20 minutes so you see a drop in, in, in acidity in the saliva and so what happens is, is if you consume regularly so if you're actually consuming sitting and having just like a bottle of soda with a cap on it and you sip and every 20 or 30 minutes you just take a sip or two even though you're not consuming a huge amount of sugar throughout the day because you're consuming it throughout the day that's actually fueling a greater risk of tooth decay than if somebody were to just take a bottle and drink it in five minutes or less and then it's gone so there's some confusion about understanding the availability of sugars for children and adults and how often they're consumed you know, another piece of this is that parents often think that they should water down beverages, thinking like less sugar equates into less risk of tooth decay. But the, the problem is that 
it sort of ex- it spreads out the time period that the sugar is going to be consumed. So even watering down juice um, is a bad idea. We know the American Academy of Pediatrics is not recommending juice for very young children and, and very limited quantities for older children. And it's because juice is a sugary beverage that has as much sugar often as soda does. Mm-hmm. Um, and parents are, parents are unaware of this, that juice can be an extremely unhealthy component of children's diets. It's interesting that juice has a health halo, but so too do sports beverages. And that's often been one of yeah. my topics that I like to discuss with media because I think if parents really turned and looked at that label to see just how much sugar is in there, and then there's also the question of diet soft drinks. I hope most children are not using those just because we've had more research on how those artificial sweeteners affect the gut microbiome, but it's still an acidic beverage that is also exposing the teeth to a pH that is not desirable. It's a great point that you're bringing up because a lot of parents are putting like flavored waters as well or like seltzers that have flavoring in them that have no sugar, but they have acid in them. And so where if you have tooth decay and you're thinking this is a great alternative because it has no sugar in it, it actually is not because it assists the fueling of the, the decay process still because you're, you're drinking an acidic beverage that's dropping the acidity in your mouth and whatever sugars you may have and other acids, it's is assisting in the, in the decay promotion of teeth. That's so interesting. Well, I want to talk about tooth decay because I have read, and I think you've even mentioned this in past interviews, that the problem with tooth decay is that when it starts in childhood, it really is the strongest indicator of risk into adulthood. And so once these bacteria, you know, we talk about the gut microbiome, but there's also this oral microbiome that we're learning about and how once these bacteria are established in the mouth, they're there to stay. You know, it's interesting because I think the understanding of oral health and the health of the rest of the body is often divided. Mm. And the concepts between understanding risk factors for other health issues is very similar with oral health as it is with things such as, I mean, a basic principle is cancer. Like who is at the greatest risk of cancer? And the simplest answer is somebody that's already had it. So like the reality is the most person most likely to have cancer is somebody that's had cancer before. I mean, it, obviously we worry about smokers and, and obesity and other health risk factors, but the primary risk factor is having had it. And so for tooth decay, it's no different. And the problem for us is just like it is with cancer cells that they may be dormant after treatment. And with tooth decay, what we can do in order to manage decay in children is placing fillings and, and sealants and other things that help either stop the process or patch, you know, it's patchwork, the disease process. But dentistry is not perfect. You know, when you go to the dentist, there's no guarantee of anything we're doing. And there's a reason for that because it's, it's mechanical repair of tooth structure and, and it, it has multiple things, you know, the stress forces of chewing and what your diet is like and who knows what conditions were under that when you were placing fillings or what have you, whatever was being done. It's a very imperfect solution. Uh, and so that the failure, you know, things fail, obviously we expect them to fail over time. And so that history, unfortunately, predisposes you to the greatest risk of future decay. Mm. And I thought it was interesting too, there was a 2011 study in the American Journal of Public Health 
which found that the lack of treatment has real consequences for kids. So children with poor dental health are more likely to miss school and get lower grades. There was also a survey that found that more than 15% of American children aged 5 to 19 had untreated cavities and that tooth decay is four times more common in adolescents than asthma. And this is according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I feel like this is an underreported piece of information and that we should be giving much more emphasis to dental health than maybe we have in the past. I mean, it's true that, that uh, tooth decay is the most chronic disease of childhood, wow. uh, as you stated, more so than factors more than, than asthma. I mean, part of the problem, and, and, and I know this has been an interest of yours, is that the way we manage oral health has been something that we've been doing for decades in the same way. I mean, we've, we've made some alterations here and there, but many of the, the directions we've taken with managing oral health, particularly in children, are those that the sugar industry wanted us to back in the 1960s. And we've gone down this pathway of focusing more on treatment and less on discussing reducing the consumption of sugar and reducing the risk factor. We know that for lung cancer, you know, the historically the strongest risk factor was smoking. And so we, we went after tobacco and the tobacco industry fought aggressively against that. And we, we ultimately won in many arenas. We still have smoking, obviously, and we still have people that are at risk for lung disease because of tobacco products. But in dentistry, we have not done so. Mm-hmm. We have not gone after the sugar industry. Instead, we've focused on treatment as a solution. Right. Uh, and, you know, we do have lots of untreated disease and lots of kids that are having toothaches and missing school and so forth. But more treatment is not necessarily a solution to a preventable disease where we know what the cause is. All right. Let me take one break because we're halfway through. And just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Jonathan Schenken. He is a pediatric dentist with great expertise in prevention. Now, I want to dive into the sugar industry issue because being a member of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and you being a member of the American Dental Association, we see parallels in how messaging works. So rather than coming out and saying simply sugar is a cause of dental decay, just as tobacco is a cause of lung cancer, we tweak our messages to say things like, well, if you're going to have sugar, here's how to navigate consuming it, rather than to come straight out and say, eat less sugar. Yeah. It's interesting. If you look at the oral health of people 2,000, 3,000 years ago, refined sugars were not part of the diet right. of ancient Egyptians. So if you look at, you know, they've done these really amazing CAT scans of mummies. And one of the most interesting parts of the body to look at are the teeth. And I've seen a number of these. And the the real issue for adults in ancient Egypt was the fact that their flour was ground with stone and the stone would get into the flour and they would eat bread and the bread would actually grind, you know, the bread and and the stone in the bread would grind down the teeth. Oh, wow. So you would see you actually would see teeth worn down to the nerves of the tooth 
and you'd see like these infections in the mouth, multiple infections related to those exposures, but you would not see any signs of tooth decay wow. in these adults. And so, you know, our diets have changed over thousands of years, and most importantly, over the last decades, where we've had more and more added sugars put into our diets. And this is what's really the driving force, is the food industry and the added sugars that have been promoted in the increase in tooth decay in modern society. And I love that you're working with the Fred Rogers Productions on dental-related episodes for children's TV shows. And I know that you also are connected with the Campaign for Commercial-Free Childhood. I love that organization because what it helps do is show parents and kids, too, how they are targeted by the food industry. You know, we don't have ads on TV during cartoons, for example, of broccoli and carrots. We have cartoons with sugary cereals or beverages, carbonated beverages, sugar-sweetened sports drinks. It's unfortunate because we see children wanting, you know, sugar is addictive. It has, there's an effect on brain chemistry. And we have these exposures for children at an early age because of the marketing that's done to young kids. And then there's just this never-ending cycle of wanting more and because it's delicious. And the damage, unfortunately, can be profound and lifelong. Right. Um, You know, I remember when my own children were in school, seeing the soft drink machines, and I know things have changed. I think school districts are saying, no, we're going to take soft drink machines out of, say, elementary schools. But I remember it being such a struggle to get soft drink machines out of schools because they were such a significant funding for the schools that, you know, the public schools that were hurting for funds for basic, really great programs for kids. So it was always a struggle. Have you been involved at all in trying to change those kinds of policies? I actually, about 17 years ago, I was on the state public, Maine State Commission to Study Public Health, and I co-chaired, we had a a subcommittee on children, nutrition, and schools that I co-chaired, and we actually were the first state to remove soda from public schools in the country. And I, I presented to the Institute of Medicine during one of their reports about the process in Maine and frustrations primarily because I was, it's a, Maine is a small state and so any kind of initiatives that you're behind, you're going to be actually be testifying and integral in, in, in uh, making them happen. And so I was testifying regularly in the legislature about getting soda out of public schools and fighting the soda industry and fighting the lobbyists uh, in the soda industry. And it was a really interesting process. Um, and I had actually introduced uh, legislation when I was a resident at the University of Iowa in the state Senate, uh, by a, st- a senator in Iowa had presented a piece of legislation on my behalf just to study the sales of soda in public schools. And the soda industry wanted no part of that. And they, they were able to kill the legislation and committee and make sure it went nowhere. And that's really, really interesting to me is that when I look back at that, you know, one of the most important things as a researcher or policymaker is information. And I find it interesting that the soda industry's desire was to ensure no information, that they mm. did not want the legislature in Iowa to be aware of how much soda kids were consuming in public schools uh, or purchasing in public schools. And I think that that is uh, a testament to, to them trying to hide information. I think it's fair to say that. I'm to sure. hide information that would enable policymakers to make good decisions for children. 
And I don't think I, that is just one, that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of other efforts that they've made to influence policy and healthcare decisions on a larger level for children in this country. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And you know, the other issue that concerns me a great deal is the lack of access to dental care. So we know, of course, as a dietitian, I'm always promoting eating more fruits and vegetables, and it requires teeth that don't hurt or are not missing to eat these foods that we know to be preventive against a host of chronic diseases. And yet we know, too, that children, especially those children living in poverty, and I think the COVID pandemic has certainly put more children at risk for living in poverty. We know that kids just don't have the access that they truly need. What do you tell your audiences about this? You know, it's interesting, you know, like the the problem we have in this country for, for dental care access is it costs money. And unlike medicine where you could go to like an emergency room, if you had, I, I wrote a piece uh, a number of years ago for the American Dental Association, and it was sent to all the dentists in the country about this problem where if you go to the emergency room and you have an appendicitis and you have no insurance and you're in an emergency situation, they're going to treat you for the most part. Or if you have Medicaid or Medicare, they're going to treat you like they would treat an executive that had private health benefits. And you would go to the same operating room, you'd have the same surgeon, you'd have the same recovery room nurses, and you'd have the same same treatment need met. But with tooth decay, even if you were to go to a community health center, a federally qualified health center, there are sliding fee scales. And if you're not able to even afford that, well, then that's unfortunately the factor that's going to matter is your ability to pay for services. And you may have it like an episode dealt with, but in terms of your comprehensive health needs, if you don't have the resources, you don't get the care. And that matters more because in dentistry, unlike medicine, dental benefits for adults is not a mandated service under Medicaid. So many states have very limited dental care for adults. And what we know from research is that if adults or parents do not access dental care, they are less likely to access dental care for their own children. Mm. So if we're not providing adequate dental care for our entire adult population, the likelihood of us not providing adequate dental care for our pediatric population is going to be greatly minimized. Even if we put in all these extra efforts to provide dental services for children, we have to address the global issue of access to dental care for everybody, which right. is which is lacking still. Yeah. And every now and then we'll hear a story about a child that actually dies as a result of not having access to care when it was first needed. And I don't think as you mentioned earlier, you know, we separate the head from the rest of the body and you've got to get separate policies for eyes and teeth, which is insane because of the connection between our oral health and the rest of our body. And how much cheaper would it be to provide that preventive care versus having a child show up at the emergency room seeking some sort of remedy for what has now become an out-of-control crisis? Well, that's an interesting question, and, and it also sort of reiterates that the issue is, what is the true problem? Is it ultimately, I mean, we, we can talk about the child in pain today, but what do we do when we talk about the child and potentially in pain tomorrow? And 
the true answer is we need to prevent that disease, which is not necessarily going to happen effectively in a dental office that you go to once every six months. It's going to happen at home. The most effective preventive tools are at home, not in a dental office. And so offering more preventive care, and we can look at models like in New Zealand where they have school-based dental care for all children using these mid-level providers called dental therapists. Mm. And they have probably one of the worst levels of oral health in the world. So providing lots of dental care and having it free for everybody doesn't prevent people from doing all the things that actually destroy your teeth. And that's sort of where when you look at models like that, which have been sort of brought up as uh, ideal models by some foundations and organizations in the United States, fails to look at their outcomes, which are abysmal. Mm. And and so we have to be careful about it necessarily saying, because we go down this pathway that the sugar industry want us to, mm. that the solution is more and more treatment is the solution. And even prevention and blaming it on the lack of prevention we can see from models like New Zealand, it doesn't work. You have to focus equally on the policies that promote oral health diseases like overconsumption of sugar. Well, we just have a couple of minutes, and I want to give you a chance to share anything that you would hope to do. But also, I hope that you can leave our listeners with some take-home messages in terms of what are the best preventive strategies for our children today. You know, I I can tell you, looking at both my private practice and having seen tens of thousands of children and and also research that I've done, whether I was working at NIH or Boston University, the data is clear that the individuals least likely to develop tooth decay are those that are brushing their teeth twice a day with a fluoride toothpaste. If you have access to fluoride and you're drinking water, you should be drinking it. And using fluoride toothpaste at the correct age, I mean, we changed our policies several years ago at the American Dental Association, so that we're now recommending that children at the age of one or when they get their first tooth start using a fluoride toothpaste, but only a right size amount so that they are we're titrating because we know they're going to swallow some, which is the b- biggest concern by parents and ourselves too, is we want to titrate how much they're, they're taking in, but we want them to be brushing twice a day with a fluoride toothpaste. If you're doing that and you're limiting your beverage consumption that has sugar, I would tell parents the best quantity of sugary beverages to consume a day, whether it be soda or juices or or anything that has sugar in them, is zero. There is no need for, from a health perspective, to be drinking juice. You should have zero per day of those beverages. And you should be drinking water, not flavored water, plain water and milk. And there should be nothing going to bed at night with a child in a bottle unless it's just water. If you just follow those basic parameters the likelihood of developing tooth decay are greatly minimized. And even for adults, I mean, thinking about yourself and your risk factors, water all day long is the key to good oral health and brushing twice a day with a fluoride toothpaste. The models of good oral health behaviors that result in in good oral health are pretty simple. And I, I think if people just reconsider their daily habits, they can have much healthier oral health for life. That sounds great. And I will provide a link to the American Dental Association's mouthhealthy.org site, which gives more details about diet and dental decay and how we can protect our children's health first and foremost. 
We've got to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Jonathan Schenken, former vice president of the American Dental Association and presently clinical associate professor of health policy, health services research, and pediatric dentistry at Boston University. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Bonda. Appreciate it. 